This is D2C Journey. We talk to innovative e-commerce leaders driving the growth of exceptional D2C brands. We dive deep into their stories to bring you powerful perspectives and actionable insights so you can build a more successful e-commerce business. Keep up with us at d2cjourney.com. Let's get started. This podcast is sponsored by Reviews.io. Reviews.io have created a platform that helps businesses gain insight, build trust, and manage their reputation through the power of review collection and management. Reviews and user-generated content needn't be costly or difficult to manage, which is why Reviews.io created the most feature-rich and cost-effective Google-licensed review platform on the market. Reviews.io makes it simple for customers to review the product and the company, whilst giving you all of the benefits of review collection, including Google Stars, seller ratings, improved customer trust, more website traffic, and higher conversion rates. Find out more about what reviews can do for your business at www.reviews.io. Hello, thanks for tuning in. I'm your host, James Lane, and my guest today is Addison Clark, founder of the lifestyle fashion brand P&Co. He and the team scaled P&Co from a napkin idea in Birmingham to a global brand, generating multi-million pounds in sales and shipping thousands of orders worldwide. Their success was focusing on their community and marketing through honest, inspirational, relatable campaigns. This led to building one of the strongest communities of over 400,000 people and a brand that isn't solely reliant on performance marketing. Addison exited the business in 2020 and is now working strategically with other direct-to-consumer brands to help maximize their marketing efforts and build profitable businesses. Addison, welcome to the show. Hi, James. Thanks for having me. It's quite the intro. <laughs> Appreciate that. You're very welcome. No worries. Good to, good to have you on. Uh, so first question that we start with, uh, with all our guests, uh, where would you describe where you are right now on your D2C journey? that's a good place to start isn't it considering the name of the podcast I like what you've done there yeah thank you um I think in terms of direct to consumer and where I am with it right now because I have been I guess in the space for 10 plus years now I think it's more and more becoming about the experience and the product obviously you've got to have everything else layered on top like the e-commerce strategy the branding content but when it comes down to direct to consumer and wanting to add value directly to a customer, I, I do think that more and more now brands should be investing in their product and making it as best as it, it can be and really having that extra level of customer experience when they're dipping in and out of, of different touch points in their kind of brand journey. So I think right now it's a really interesting time because I do think that brands have really got to step up and make sure that they're creating products and experiences that are just above and beyond and that are going to want to make their customers kind of fall in love with the brand. So I think it's just a really interesting time. And I think we'll start to see a lot of different plays happen from both the bigger kind of brands and, and obviously the kind of small kind of startup, innovative startups of the world. So I think it's an interesting time. Yeah, definitely. And that sounds... Um... Similar to what what I know of your uh, story at PNCO as well, so I'm sure we'll um, yeah we'll hear about some of the things that you you implemented there. So why don't we just take it back to the beginning then? Um, can you tell me a little bit about how you came to start PNCO? Yeah, well, as you said, it was it was literally a napkin idea, but I think fast forward before that kind of meeting happened, I I've always been, I guess, creative, and I've always been kind of in and out the kind of creative industry. If it was like 
making music or designing posters or, you know, trying to help a, a record label get off the ground. And at the time I, I met my co-founder Lee in a similar kind of capacity and we just both had really similar interests. We're into fashion, we're into kind of culture. And at the time, I think this was like 2012, maybe we were looking out there and I think social media was just kind of starting. And we saw that as a massive opportunity to, I guess, distribute creative projects and things like that. And when we looked at the platform and we looked at the brands that we've always looked to for years, like Levi's and, you know, All Saints, people like that, we just thought that it was, you know, what they were doing at the time. Uh, no disrespect to anyone that, that was kind of there, there at those businesses, but we thought it was a bit flat in terms of what they could be doing on a community-driven platform. So we didn't necessarily start to make a clothing brand. It was just, we want to make a brand that would appeal and could connect with people like us. So Lee and I, and what we're interested in, and that the idea of Pinoco just kind of happened naturally. And to be honest, it, the business was called um, Pocket & Co <laughs> from day one. And the idea was just to, okay, let's print some pocket t-shirts with some really cool designs and, and see how we get on. And as we kind of grew the business and things had to change, we probably changed the business model, you know, more times than I can count. But once we got that kind of formula right, we understood the market, we understood the customers, you know, that's when we started to see growth. That's when we started to see, okay, this is, this is a real, you know, opportunity we have here. Mm-hmm. I didn't know it started off as uh, Pocket Co. That's interesting. Yeah. <laughs> um, cool. So how did you win your first few customers then in those early days? Yeah. So as I said, we, we both kind of took to Instagram in 2013 and, I think it was it was storytelling. So we kind of started our own P and Co Instagram and made sure that we were very kind of authentic and honest. And we put out content as a story almost to kind of you know take people from not knowing anything about us to them signing up to the newsletter, understanding we were developing this collection and it was launching on this date. And that kind of anticipation and that kind of strategy and behind the scenes and being honest and open that that really worked for us and that's what we've carried through to still today they kind of do that they tease collections and they build anticipation and then have a big kind of launch event and that's what we kind of did from the first couple of years really we made sure we'd launch a brand new collection or a product quite frequently and we'd make sure we'd have you know we'd involve our community and that's kind of how we we built the marketing strategy, I guess, for, for P&Co is around these kind of, at the time it was themed collections. So, I mean, if you look at what we did in, at the start, it was we, we were printing on a t-shirt or ha- how do you create desirability around a, a t-shirt? It's a commodity product. So we kind of thought, well, let's, you know, Lee was an incredible designer at the time. Let's create these kind of designs and let's give them a bit of a theme and a story. So people would be not only buying a t-shirt, they'd be buying into the brand, they'd be buying into the story. And by wearing these t-shirts, they would be saying that they are a part of the brand and they understand the story, they like the artwork. So it was more of a kind of statement um, Mm t-shirt and that that worked really well. And I think once we kind of figured out that worked, so these kind of themed-based story collections, you've got like Desires and Liars collection, you had the Founders collection, you had like typography products, that really worked. And I think as we grew the business, we still take that approach, but it's more kind of seasonal based. And as you grow in supply chain and cash flow, moving from a one drop business to a, a seasonal is, is definitely the way to go as you grow. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Cool. So, I mean, it's very clear listening to that, that you really did want to build a brand, you know, a fashion brand that you connected with 
as a consumer almost you, you're kind of looking for what wasn't out there i guess mm-hmm. um so a lot of you know entrepreneurs will start businesses really just out of kind of financial incentives they start a brand they think will sell well and um, not really have that legitimate kind of story or um, need to connect that that you had uh, what role do you think that story and authenticity plays in building a successful brand and do you think that it's an essential component today for for a brand to succeed yeah that's a really interesting concept at the moment because I do think you are right I think you know over the past couple of years especially through 2020 whenever covid was i get confused um <laughs> i think that there were so many brands that kind of launched out of we are seeing this massive explosion online let's be there in some capacity and i think that people got used to seeing all of these brands over the last couple of years and i do think that now people can see through the brands that are just created for maybe a commercial gain and i do think that there are you know, most consumers now are getting quite smart with that. They're getting quite in tune with, I like this product, but you know, who, who makes it? Is it sustainable? What's, what's their purpose? Do they support charities? So I do think now people want that extra level of openness with a brand and the authenticity. You know, if you look at, so a client of mine um, last year was a brand called Chelsea Peers. And when we looked at their marketing strategy, I, I wanted to make sure that they had a, a piece around behind the scenes and they we were making sure that we were letting people know that they were a real team with real people in London developing amazing products. And it wasn't a massive strategy, but it was a post every now and then involving the team. But having that in the mix on an Instagram or on a TikTok or even in an email will just add that level of, of trust to a customer. And I do think as soon as that trust that, that customer trusts in a brand it's another tick in the box to yes i'm going to buy into their product yes i am going to come to this product when i need pajamas say for chelsea pierce so i do think that now just that extra level of honesty and authenticity can really help you know win over more customers and just build that bond Mm -hmm. yeah absolutely so i guess to uh to the aspiring entrepreneurs out there the advice is to find something that um you're passionate about yeah that, that you're passionate about and that you connect with awesome okay cool so you bootstrapped the business from the beginning. Uh, what would you say the advantages are of doing that versus you know, raising money to help you scale quickly? I think the, the advantages was fail fast. It, it really gave us this kind of entrepreneurial spirit to you know, make sure that everything we were doing needed to work because obviously we were every kind of collection we would launch, we'd bank the profit and then we'd reinvest that profit to make a bigger collection. So all of our cash was kind of strapped up in in working capital in in products. So the marketing budget, and I think for the first what was it four or five years, we didn't we didn't spend a penny on performance marketing. It was all you know kind of photo shoots and storytelling and videography. Obviously, we had that budget, and we also had capability in the team to do those sorts of things. But it was all about who we're selling to, what's the message, why are they going to connect with it this, how, how we can engage them and ultimately how we can get that person on the website to make a sale. So we just obsessed over those details. And in every meeting, we'd always make sure we'd, we'd answer all of those questions as best as we could. Obviously, some things worked, some things didn't. I'm not going to mention the peacock print t-shirts that, that might have been my idea. <laughs> it didn't do that well. But hey, we all learn. Um, but no, I think that in terms of you know, being a self-funded brand, you've got to learn quick. And it does mean that as soon as you find that winning solution, you can then really go, you know, hell for leather and invest and double down on that. But 
if you look at Pienko, we started in 2013. So e-commerce boom was kind of just happening. Whereas now there's so much more out there for entrepreneurs to get funded and explain their idea. I do think there's got to be an element of both. I don't think you can just go and raise X million pounds because I do think you've got to have proof of concept. So and I've seen that happen quite a lot lately. So you, you'll have a brand launch for a few months and then have their success um validified i guess and then they would end up on a platform like kickstarter to get community funding i think that's working really well mm-hmm. yeah i see a lot of brands uh crowdfunding now these days don't you yeah it's really good cool so that theory of uh i guess failing fast and kind of learning from it leads me very nicely on to, to my next question in that growing from that kind of napkin idea in in birmingham to a seven-figure brand you obviously had a lot of uh lessons learned i, I imagine there was quite a few failures along the way can you talk through some of the uh, growing pains that you encountered um, taking taking the company from a startup brand into a fully fledged business Hmm. yeah in terms of failings we always try to clasp it as a learning and I think that that's important for entrepreneurs to you know not be as hard as they are sometimes on themselves because you know we are in terms of e-commerce it's always changing there isn't a rule book for it you know if you look at an operational business like, I don't know, law firm, obviously it's changing, but they've got set procedures. They've got a rule book there. Whereas in D2C, in brand building, there is no, you know, this is the black and white business model that you can follow. Just not having any of that kind of knowledge internally and systems and processes, you can get into a bit a sticky position if you don't have your eyes on the cash flow, for example, or you don't have good relationship with your factories so you something can go wrong with the factory you've planned a launch on friday the 13th of november and you've not got the stock in time so it's just learning and understanding how the business works and understanding that we're in this together in e-commerce i think that everyone would appreciate there isn't one way of doing things so i just think that that level of of empathy for for people in e-commerce at the moment needs to be there. But I do think there's obviously some amazing agencies out there that have done this and that are doing this and that have procedures and processes in place. And we leaned quite heavily into using freelancers and non-exec directors and people that have done it before that we could kind of lean on. And I would strongly advise that if you are starting to see real growth and you don't have strengths in certain areas, I would 100% have conversations with people that do and see how you can involve them in your um, in your journey, in your business. Mm-hmm. For sure. And when you look back, obviously, building P&Co, between founding it in 2013 to eventually exiting in, in 2020, what are the key milestones that stand out for you as periods of time where you did take that next step? Mm. I think it would be the product, to be honest. It would be seeing a product come to life from a, a drawing or a, a Pinterest mood board working with the, the factories and now kind of Jordan that, you know, who is kind of responsible for production and kind of being in a kickoff meeting saying, right, spring collection, we want to do a wax canvas jacket. <laughs> and at the time to have that level of jacket produced and made with all the finishings on and the details to, to see the process from kind of sample to finish to taking it to LA to do the photo shoot to then seeing customers wear it, that would be a big kind of milestone in my opinion. So those kind of custom products, our first custom t-shirt, the the denim jacket, the leather jacket, the the leather goods, 
it's a massive accomplishment to, to tick off a new kind of product category. Mm-hmm. So I think that there's quite a lot of, of product milestones that I would personally hold on that kind of milestone point. But I also think other things like hitting a, a new order level, so you know, our 200,000th order, that would always be a massive milestone that we'd celebrate. Mm-hmm. And, and seeing the community really get involved and when we'd share an idea, instead of two comments, it'd be 100. And just seeing that start to grow, it's just... It shows the um, the level of how far you've come. Yeah, an impact you can have on a on a community, and, and you know, it, it, all of the hard work pays off. Mm-hmm. Did you uh, did you have anything uh, traditional that you guys like to do when you hit certain, you know, certain new milestones like uh, like your two hundred thousandth order? Yeah, donuts or <laughs> <laughs> <All> those zeros. <laughs> nice. <laughs> yeah. Perfect. Yeah, I can't remember where we got them from. I think, I think there was a, a place in Birmingham called Steamhouse Bagels. Yeah, we always used to go to there and they'd, they'd sort us out. So that's a bit of a ritual, yeah. Very nice. Cool. Okay, great. So in those early years then of, of growing the business and kind of seeing the business grow, what were the most important metrics that you were tracking? Firstly, in the early years, and then did that change as the business kind of matured? Yeah, metrics, metrics, metrics. It's so important. And, you know, as we were starting... We, I think we were on a big cartel to start with and I couldn't get the, the metrics that I needed as a, as a marketer and as, as a founder, I guess, looking at cash flow and thinking about what we needed to drive to that site to get those sales in. Um, so we very quickly switched to Shopify. I think we were one of you know, the first X thousand brands to be on the platform. Uh, and getting that level of insight without Google Analytics and you know all of the other kind of expensive data mining um, software you can get was game changing, really. So I was able to look at you know, CPC, CRV, traffic, bounce rate, add to cart. And as a marketer, I can't stress enough how you need to understand these metrics, and you need to understand how you can influence them. So bounce rate, for example, if you're sending traffic to that site and they're bouncing after you know, X seconds, you know that traffic source isn't working. So you need to make a decision off the back of that. And it will work for CPC, for all of these other kind of KPIs. So, you know, we used to have a massive spreadsheet and every week we, I'd, I'd update it with all of the figures and make decisions off the back of that. And once you start to understand how you can influence those metrics, that's how you build and that's how you grow. I, I looked at kind of the hardline data metrics, but we also looked at you know, more of the kind of softer kind of brand um, metrics, you know, we wanted to look at for longevity. We wanted to build a brand that was going to be around for the next, you know, well, for the, <laughs> for the foreseeable future. Mm-hmm. So I, I came up with a thing called Cafe and it was customers, average order value, frequency and engagement. So starting with the C, so customers making sure that our customers were happy, they were engaging with us on social media, they were posting, really making sure that our customers are seeing a benefit from the content and the marketing strategies that we're putting out there. And they're also really enjoying the product. So that was a really important kind of non-solid metric, I guess, that I looked at. Average order value was really important, you know, making sure that we were getting the most out of the purchase funnel and making sure that people weren't just coming on and buying a mug, for example, they were buying three or five different things. So I'd make sure that we had strategies in place to make sure that we were maximizing our orders and maximizing our our marketing budget. And then the F was um, frequency. So, you know, making sure that if we were paying X amount of money to acquire these customers, that we were getting people to come back and they'd have things to buy and 
that's why, you know, these kind of seasonal launches are, are building the brand. And that's why we're able to really invest in our marketing because we've got a base of thousands of customers that will come back and buy every season, but making sure that they're happy and we're delivering on good products, obviously going to build into that. And then the E um, was engagement. So it was making sure that we were getting a good level of engagement on our reviews, on our net promoter score, on anywhere online that there was forums or PR. So I think that this kind of cafe analogy that I came up with was quite important to um, just building a, a brand that was going to be profitable and sustainable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's awesome. My, my follow-up question before you explained the, uh, the cafe model was... Uh, I can guess where that came from. Yeah, yeah. Uh, was uh, how you, how do you balance the hard numerical data that you need to be keeping an eye on as any business does versus the building the brand and making sure that the, the customers are having a good experience? So yeah, cafe sounds like you kind of cover those cover those bases there and can keep all those plates spinning at once. I guess. Mm, I think the cafe analogy was more. You know, we wouldn't have a database like the hardline data. It'd be more, you know, a feeling. It would be more monthly, just going in certain places and making sure that, you know, we're ticking those boxes. So definitely on a a weekly basis when you're, you know, spending X amount of thousands of pounds on performance or you've got 20 photo shoots in that month. So Mm -hmm. those those hardline data we did need to be on top of every week, really. Cool. So you you now work with other brands, founders and teams on their own marketing and business strategy. Um, How do you tend to approach a project when you get a new client? Yeah, so I guess being a founder and being in a DTC brand, I've experienced multiple parts of their business strategy, I guess, in DTC. So I always kind of, you know, when I get that initial, hi, we'd love to work with you. I I need help with X. I really make sure that the brief and the objectives are clear since that first meeting. So I make sure that, you know, we kind of look at all of these different parts of a a marketing strategy to start with. So I'd look at what are we going to do for always on? What are we going to do for these major moment campaigns? What products have you got in the pipeline? So I, I really get to know the business first and we do like a big immersion session. I've got a kind of format for how that works. So at the end of this immersion session, I can kind of summarize that and go back to the founder of the team and just say, look, this is where you are now. This is the situation. These are the objectives. And then this is what we're going to do to get to where you want to be. So I kind of take a bit of a systematic approach and then kind of how much time or, you know, how much strategy they need is is kind of how we progress from there. Okay, cool. And, and then obviously now doing with your consultancy work, you work with clients ranging from startups to international brands, uh, which puts you in quite a unique position to see what trends and tactics are working at different stages of a business's life. Mm-hmm. Um, are there any tactics working across the board, regardless of business size, that you always recommend to your clients that they need to start doing if they're not already? Yeah, I think... In- I don't know if you describe it as a tactic, but I think one thing that I do always see that works is when a brand really takes things seriously from a consistency point of view. So, you know, they're making sure that all of their digital presence is unified and they've got this consistency from their YouTube channel to their Instagram to their Google ads or their Facebook ads or their website. So I do think that once that's in place, you really stand out from all of the other brands out there that might not have that kind of consistency throughout. And I do see that being the number one thing to start with is just making sure that, you know, visually and content wise, so the copy and the things you are saying are unified throughout. 
So with PNCO, we always make sure every year that that main kind of strap line, you know, if it was provisions for the wild or wild ones never die or whatever it was going to be that year that would unify the strategy, that that was throughout everything that we did. So I do think that consistency to start with is really important. But the things that I am seeing now working for brands is, again, having really strong products that they've worked hard to develop and that do serve a purpose or a different things on the market. And I also see content marketing through influencer and tastemakers. That's so successful now. I think that that PR element of building a brand, people need to really consider that over something like Facebook marketing. I do think that now people are becoming almost immune to sponsored posts with shop now. Mm. I do think people want to see things more organically via the people that they follow. So if it was, I don't know, Joe that's a cyclist in... I don't know, Australia that's just had the new Rafa kit and he's telling his community about that. I think that's way more powerful than seeing a sponsored post. Yes, it has a longer tail ROI, but in the long run, you want customers that are going to want to buy into your brand because it, it matches their values or it serves a purpose. So I do think this PR influencer long-term brand marketing is, is going to kind of have a bit of a moment over the next couple of years. Mm-hmm. And do you have any tips um for how to acquire that kind of organic feeling UGC from from customers? From customers. See, that's yeah, an interesting one at the moment. So I think, again, Instagram has changed and how people use Instagram has changed. I think 80% of people on Instagram aren't taking content and they aren't sharing, they're consuming, which is quite interesting. Hmm. So I think getting your community to be involved and I guess to do marketing in, in some way, shape or form, it needs to be rather than oh, look at look at my order that I've just received. It needs to be a bit more thought out than that. So I think that, you know, competitions, run clubs, things like that, that people can get involved with on an organic level. Again, a beware brand should kind of spend some time and, and thought around. I think there's a really good brand in the kind of CBD space called Pure Sport. And I don't know if you, you've seen them, but they do kind of running clubs in and around London and you know, I, I've kind of watched the brand over the past couple of months and these running clubs have gone from 20 people to now I think they're like four or 500 and that amount of people put, posting their Strava kind of screenshot on Instagram and tagging the brand. Those are the interactions that you want to, that you want and that you want to kind of orchestrate almost. Mm-hmm. It all comes back to community. It does. It does. Nice one. Cool. Um, okay. So talking about one of your um, recent case studies then, you, you recently helped Chelsea Peers transition from a purely B2B business to uh, direct consumer. Can you talk us through some of the challenges of taking an existing brand that is operating in a, a B2B capacity, taking them to direct consumer and what obstacles should people look out for if they're undergoing a, a similar journey? Yeah, I think with that one, it is it was more on the um, on the stock side, to be honest. So making sure that, you know, if they were selling a collection into ASOS or John Lewis or whoever, you know, how are we going to stand apart from said retailer? So how are we going to make it way more appealing for someone to buy directly from Chelsea Peers than an ASOS or an Amazon? And obviously with that becomes challenges like next day shipping, free returns, things like that. So it's making sure that, the business can sustainably consume some of those costs while scaling. And then it's all down to marketing and making sure that our content fits in with that collection better than anyone else's, you know, things that we can do to engage our community is much more authentic. 
So it, it was definitely a lot of challenges that we came up against, but it was really refreshing because it's things that I'd done before and, you know, things that I could implement and conversations that I could have with people that would have a massive impact straight away. And the team were just amazing there. They really took things on board and they came back with some amazing ideas. And now I think they're probably one of the biggest, you know, kind of lounge pajama brands in, in definitely in the UK. And I know that they'll be taking on the kind of US market and uh, Europe uh, really soon. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. Cool. Okay. And then, you know, looking ahead to so this year then, are there any particular trends that you're excited about for, for D2C brands in 2023? I think this kind of, you know, these purpose brands and people really starting to think more seriously on, I want to build a business, you know, I want to do this product. How am I going to be different to everyone? So I just think that there will be a trend of, of really niche kind of products and brands start to kind of pop up and, Even in a category, let's take this kind of nootropic CBD, the mushroom kind of boom that's happening at the moment. So I really see that as a trend just because I think everyone is kind of, you know, looking into how can I look into my mental state or how can I improve my fitness? And I think that mushrooms are obviously a massive enabler to different health benefits. And I think that there's a lot of brands popping up in this space, but taking a different twist on it. So you've got the kind of sports twist you've got the the kind of entrepreneurial twist and I guess the kind of you know the TikTok creative so I I think that it's quite interesting how you can take a commodity product and really define a community and a culture to that product uh, and go niche so I do think that'll be a a, a trend that happens I do think that people will think you know how can we find the smallest viable audience rather than just target everyone say Mm -hmm. so I think that'll be an interesting play on you know fashion and, and different things moving forward. Okay, cool. And I guess that's uh, good advice as well for my next question, which was what advice would you have for people who say that a market is too saturated to start a business in? Mm. I think that, that that's more of an attitude. If, if you already have that mindset, I don't think that market is right for you because the ideas and the entrepreneurs that I've worked with that have had this burning desire to do, I want to launch a, I don't know, a, a camera accessory brand because I've got a passion for this and I am going to do it this way. I think you'll find a way to make it work because you're really passionate about it. So I think that as soon as you kind of have that light bulb, you know, moment or you really feel passionate about something, I think that's when you kind of go all in and you will make it work. I mean, look at P&K, we started selling pocket t-shirts and look where we are now because we had that passion, because we had the desire, we made sure that we made it work and we, you know, we made sure we put grit and, and time and, and sweat and tears into building the brand. So I think that if you've got that attitude, anything can happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's so many business ideas on the scrap heap just because, uh, you know. Well, I've got I've got hundreds. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> just because people think, oh, there's too many people in the market already. There's, uh, yeah, there's no point. Take the risk. I think you've got to take the risk really and yeah. be confident that your idea will will work. It's everything. Do it different or better in some way. Yeah, an an entrepreneur speaking passionately about their business on a podcast or even on an Instagram post, Mm -hmm. that's going to have a massive impact and a knock-on effect to, you know, friends and family talking about what they're doing and customers talking about what they're doing. I mean, look at Represent, you know, case in point, the two founders are the most passionate I've ever seen about people talking about a brand and they've become influencers and tastemakers within their own right because they're seen as these business leaders who are super focused and have a massive passion for what they're doing. So I think that that's, it's a strategy that you can't really orchestrate, but it's something to consider just making sure that, you know, you are passionate and you're talking passionately about what you are doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I feel like if you're, if you're really passionate about something, it's, 
you know, much harder to fail, isn't it? Because you just keep mm. going. It gives you that relentlessness that I think you need. Definitely. Um, awesome. Okay. Do you have any favorite D2C brands that you regularly look to for, for inspiration? Um, well, yeah. So there's a few brands that I'm looking at at the moment, um, just from an interesting business model point of view. So there's a brand called Painter Jackets, mm-hmm. uh, a brand called Batch. And I think there's a shoe company called Say. And rather than going for the traditional always on retail model, they're doing, you know, these really sustainable launches where they will launch on a certain day at a certain time. They will take the orders on and then they'll only make the products to fulfill those orders. So there's no wastage. There's nothing ending up in the sale. It's a really sustainable business. And I think within e-commerce and D2C, that's a really interesting play at the moment. So I do think that some of the bigger brands will start to kind of look at how they could be more you know, sustainable from a manufacturing point of view. Um, and I just think that that's a really interesting model at the moment because you know, once you've got those customers invested, you know that you know every X collection you can launch, you know you've guaranteed this amount of sales and that really helps with cash flow and, and production reasons. So I think that, yeah, definitely go and check out those yeah, Painter, Batch and, and Say Shoes, really interesting mm-hmm. brands in D2C at the moment. Awesome. Yeah, I'll check them out. The Painter is one that I've is the one that I've heard of out of them. Mm. Um, and yeah, uh, some of my friends. I have, think they launched this morning, actually. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah, I've just heard people waiting, you know, waiting yeah. ages for the next it, launch. It's a conversational piece and it's a story. So I think it's, it's quite clever marketing. Okay, cool. So what is your top piece of advice then for people starting fashion brands in 2023? I think it's this build trust and earn attention. That's where I would invest the most of my time into. How can I put out content and get people to notice me? And how can I gain their trust and earn their attention so they want to continue following the brand and following what we're doing? So I think brands that can do that are going to get, you know, they're going to end up, as Pianca has done with hundreds of thousands of customers that they can market to and they can grow with them. So I think really focus on those two points, really. So the trust and, and earning attention. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Thank you. And finally, what's uh, what's next for you and what are you working on at the moment? Yeah, so I am working obviously on the consultancy with your kind of startups and you know SME brands, um, but I'm also working on a marketing resource that's going to be aimed at really helping founders and anyone really working in the DTC space that kind of takes people through a systematic approach to marketing. It's not going to be a playbook, but it's going to be a take on what a brand should do if they want to build a successful marketing strategy that's going to be called common agenda. So actually, if there is any people doing the do, executing on marketing campaigns and strategy that would want to talk about you know, how we would framework this, I'd be really interested in having a, a coffee with them. So yeah, if anyone wants to reach out, yeah, drop me a line. Cool. And your website is for, for people who don't know? So it's addisonclark.com. Um, if you Google Addison Clark, it should come up, but no, if not, www.addisonclark.com. Awesome. Thank you very much. Um, Addison, thank you very much for sharing your story and being on d uh, D2C journey. Thank you, James. And no, I think obviously everything that you guys have been doing at Full Fat has been amazing recently. Um, credit to you and the team for some of the projects that you've recently launched. I've really, um, you're really pushing the boat out. It's good. I appreciate you saying so. Um, cool. Well, I've really enjoyed chatting with you, um, learning more about your story that I didn't already know and, and learning about your approach. So 
um yeah thanks a lot and and thanks to our listeners for tuning in uh i'm james lane and see you next time